0: A 737-200 crashes on approach to Colorado Springs, Colorado. How did this start the longest NTSB investigation in history?
1: Thank you, Ian Milby, for suggesting this episode. everyone welcome back to the hard landings podcast i'm nick
0: i'm miranda and i'm christy and today we have a guest introduce yourself guest
2: i'm emily this
1: This is is emily (laughs)
2: emily she gets mad at us because we got her hooked
1: yeah she doesn't
3: like to admit it they didn't get me hooked uh-huh. <laughs> Lies.
1: <laughs> she's been traveling with us a few times and she knows little to nothing about airplanes except from what she's gained from us, basically.
0: Uh, She also listens to this.
1: Yeah, she also so... listens to this. So she's learning stuff, but this is still going to be mostly like being in a completely different language to her, but that's okay. Basically, yes.
0: Which is good. So the flight that we're covering today, Miranda knows a lot about, so it doesn't put her in a great situation to ask questions you might have. So yeah, we, we brought might...
1: in a
2: still ask questions even though i know a lot about it but
1: yes we brought in a fourth party to be the common ground of knowing nothing
2: yay for knowing nothing (laughs) (laughs) all right nick what are we covering today
1: today we get to cover ua 585 united airlines 585
2: which is semi-local
0: for This us. was
1: local. Yeah, this was local. This was a flight on March 3rd of 1991 from Denver to Colorado Springs. So a very short flight for those of you that don't know. That is a 17-minute trip. <laughs>
2: you like barely get to cruising altitude and
0: then oh, you have yeah. to go cruising down Cruising altitude
1: is 11,000 feet. That's <laughs> So you don't nothing. even get
0: to today's cruising altitude. Oh,
1: no, no, no. no nope, no. Nope. Okay, side tangent. Brendan and I went to Pueblo a while ago and our cruising altitude was 9,000 feet. <laughs> So, anyways, this was a 737-200, Boeing 737-200, with the tail number November 999 Uniform Alpha. It was manufactured in May 1982 for Frontier Airlines, but it was acquired by United Airlines in 1986. So, I mean, the airplane had some age on it, but it wasn't super old. It was nine years old at the time. So, yeah, like I said, it's a 17-minute trip from Denver to Colorado Springs as they had it scheduled. So, this flight departed Denver at 9.25 a.m. and was doing at 9.46 a.m.? 47 a.m.? We think into we... Colorado Springs, somewhere in there. Something like that. Uh, anyways, beside the point, uh, the captain was 52-year-old Harold Green. He had, he had 20 years of experience. He had 9,902 hours total, of which 1,732 hours were on the 737, so quite a bit of experience.
0: The first officer was Patricia Edson, age 42, and was hired by United three years earlier. She had a total of 3,903 hours, including 1,077 hours as first officer on the Boeing 737.
2: Didn't, wasn't her dad also a United captain? I don't remember reading that anywhere. Um, hold on, she was, I think it was in the Air Disasters episode. She
1: was the one of the very first female pilots for United.
0: Interesting. That's Maybe was. that's what it was.
1: One of the first female first officers.
2: This was her second landing
0: at Colorado Springs. This landing was the captain's first at Colorado Springs as the pilot in command. However, it is likely the captain had landed many times at Colorado Springs in 16 years as a flight crew
2: member.
1: So just about the time that the airplane takes off, it... Very Very quickly gets to cruising altitude and begins its approach.
2: That's it. Yep. Goes up, stays there, goes down.
1: Yep. The day was a very, very clear day over Colorado, but there was a lot of clear air turbulence. Thanks, Colorado. Because of mountains. The flight crew received the ATIS or the Automated Terminal Information System at 9.30 a.m. local time with Information Lima. So the Automated Terminal Information System is literally a system that just provides you weather, wind information, runway information, and information about the airport you're landing at, important things, Um, and it's updated about once an hour usually. At some airports, it's updated every half an hour depending on the weather conditions, but when we say with Information Lima... They designate each hour with a different letter in the alphabet. That way they know you have to repeat that back to the tower controller when you get in contact with them. Say, I have Lima. That means they know you got the information for the airport that is current. Makes sense. Yep. Lima, however, red, winds 310 at 13 gusts to 35. So that's gust to 35 knots, which is actually almost 40 miles an hour. That's pretty high amount of wind.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Colorado. Yeah.
1: Uh, There was also a local aviation wind warning in effect, calling for winds out of the northwest gusts to 40 knots and above, but this was 40 minutes old at the time already.
0: Thanks, Colorado.
1: The flight crew added 20 knots to the approach speed based on this ATIS information, so in all of their reference speeds, they added 20 knots to account for the fact there was a lot of wind. At 9.32 a.m., the first officer reported that they were at 11,000 feet to the Colorado Springs Approach Controller and reported Lima. The approach then began to give them... The approach controller then began to give them vectors for the visual approach. So they were expecting to land visually without any instrument aids. Which
0: makes sense. It was a clear day. There was no reason to fly in IFR.
1: Yep. So the approach gave them the vectors for the visual. They read it back, and the info given by approach for winds at the time was 320 at 13 gusting 23, so not quite as bad as it had been in the Lima report. At 9.34 a.m., a descent was issued to 10,000 feet and then further to 8,500 feet three minutes later, at which point the first officer then reported the airport in sight. So obviously they could see it pretty early. The approach instructed The approach controller instructed them to remain at or above 8,500 feet until their base turn for 35, and they were cleared for a visual approach and to contact the tower on 119.9. All of that breaks down into stay at or above 8,500 feet above sea level because the airport was at 6,700 feet. I think is where it's at in Colorado Springs. So that's only really 2,000 feet. And stay at or above 8,500 until they were on their base turn. So perpendicular to the runway on their approach to runway 35. So almost dead north heading the runway. The first officer repeated back the instruction and then changed to the tower frequency given. At 9.37 and 59 seconds, the first officer reported to the tower that they were cleared for a visual for 35. 5 The tower then cleared them to land and issued wind at 320 at 16 gusting 29 knots, so a little bit higher than the last report. The first officer repeated the clearance to land and then asked if there were any reports of loss or gain of speed and altitude by the other pilots that had landed because the airplane becomes a lot more vulnerable to speed changes as it gets to a very slow speed and a low altitude. At 938, And 29 seconds, the controller explained that a previous 737 had reported at 500 feet above the ground, a 15 knot loss, which is pretty significant when you're getting to your slow touchdown speeds, at 400 feet, a 15 knot gain, and at 150 feet above the ground, a 20 knot gain. To which the first officer replied, sounds Sounds adventurous. (laughs) (laughs) They then noticed a 10 knot change, a 10 knot gain. In their speed but this is this does have a pretty huge effect if they suddenly lost 20 knots just before they're about to touch down the airplane would plant like we did in st louis hey
3: (laughs) you were there (laughs) i know a thing
1: yeah you were there for that
2: maybe that's what happened
1: so that's that's what they were trying to prep themselves for that's why they gave themselves an extra 20 knots of speed at this point they selected 30 degrees of flaps so the flaps on the back end of the wing extended to 30 degrees to counteract the slower speeds At 9.40 and 44 seconds, the tower reported traffic at 11 o'clock, 5 miles northwestbound, straight in for runway 30. First officer reported they were looking for the traffic at 9, just after that, actually. First officer asked the whereabout of the traffic, and the controller responded that the traffic was now passing behind them as they turned and was no factor. At 9.41 and 23 seconds, the controller instructed the flight, After landing, hold short of runway 30 for departing traffic on runway 30. The first officer replied, We'll hold short of runway 30, United 585. This was the last transmission they ever made.
0: Dun, dun, dun!
1: Yep. Now things start getting into witness reports, because things happened very, very quickly. The majority of witnesses said that the airplane may have been flying lower than normal, but all seemed to be pretty normal with the way the airplane was, until it suddenly rolled to the right and descended into the ground.
3: That's not terrifying.
0: And in
1: the time it took me to say that is about the time it took for that to happen.
0: It literally took nine
2: seconds.
1: It took nine How seconds. How far were they
2: from the ground?
0: They were
1: 1,000 feet above the ground.
2: Yeah. That does, that makes sense, though. Yep. I mean, as we talked about with numerous other crashes... Uh, it can we can talk about it, and it doesn't seem that fast. And then you see a video of it, and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, that <laughs>
1: happened really fast.
2: Like, there was no chance to Recover. reverse it, especially right. when you're that close to the ground. Right. There's no way.
1: Well, and to put some things in perspective, normally an airplane on approach would be doing maybe 1,000 feet per minute, usually maybe even less than that. In descent rate. In descent rate. So... To have dropped 1,000 feet in 9 seconds is pretty significant.
3: (laughs) A lot of Gs. Yep. What were you going to say? I was just going to say it doesn't take that long for heavy things to fall out of the sky. Turns out now. Like when they're they're literally just like, K-bye, they're K-bye.
1: That's that's it. It's over. K-bye. Witnesses reported that the wings had rolled to level momentarily from their turn before the plane suddenly rolled to the right until it was inverted with the nose nearly straight down. About one mile from the airport, Philip Darnell, he was on his way to a flea market in his truck, and he felt a sudden powerful gust of wind that nearly blew him off the road, he said, just moments before he saw and heard an explosion behind him of the accident aircraft. Another witness six miles from the crash site reported seeing several rotor clouds, which is a horizontal vortex of wind caused by irregular terrain or mountains. Imagine it like a horizontal tornado that most of the time you actually can't see.
0: Sometimes you can see it like at a sunset. You'll see wavy clouds that look like
2: ripples. Yep. That's... We only see that in Colorado. I should specify. Yeah, usually. Well, any any place that has mountains yeah. yep. would be able to see it. We have... The front range is covered in mountains, so...
1: Yep. He saw these rotor clouds popping up in the area of the accident just 10 to 15 minutes before the crash. And another witness had passed the area about an hour before the crash and repeated these rotor cloud observation claims. Rescuers arrived in minutes, but the plane was shattered completely, fire blackened the impact crater. There were no survivors. 20 passengers and 5 crew perished. Yep, like we said, it only took 9 seconds for that whole thing to happen. Things start getting even more strange when you start diving into the many witness statements that came out of this. An elderly couple that was reportedly walking through the park at the time stated to another witness that the airplane dropped a liquid on them that smelled very bad.
2: I wonder, because you, you told us about this earlier, Yeah. or me and Christy, let yes. me specify. If there's any liquid dropping on you from the sky that's not water,
1: yep. it's
2: probably not a good thing. Not usually. And if you know that the airplane had dropped the liquid on you, why wouldn't you want to submit that into evidence? You would
1: think. But that said, (laughs) a search for this couple ensued that included a door-to-door search of the surrounding community, and a sketch of the couple was shown on TV, but the couple remained a mystery to this day. They have no idea who this couple was, what fluid dripped on them, or any of that. So they told a witness,
3: and the witness was like, the some wit- random people told me this.
1: Yes, that's exactly what happened. But but they really had no. They had no idea who this couple was, and we still don't.
2: Okay. And like, are were they from Colorado? Were they visiting?
1: Were they just walking randomly through some Why random didn't park? They'd
2: be like, uh, this probably is good information to have. We should probably like let people know, like important people." You justify- would think.
1: Another witness, a kid was shooting hoops at a basketball court at the playground in the park as the lone person at the playground and reported that the accident happened less than 100 feet away from him, which I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there, but still, that seems maybe a little exaggerated. He said he was picked up and thrown several feet and struck by light debris, but was not injured.
2: Yeah, that's not... There's like no way.
1: I don't know. If it was so
2: close... I feel, if it was so close to you like that, I feel like you wouldn't Be not uninjured. get hurt. Yeah. yeah. And usually basketball courts are surrounded by fence. Right. And that doesn't mean that one was, but, like, if you were picked up and thrown, I would yep. assume you'd hit the fence. Yeah. So, I don't know. I feel like that's a little bit... I it, He might have been close-ish to it, but I don't know if he was that close to it.
1: Yep. I don't know, but... People were saying that if it had been only just a few hours later, that playground probably would have been full of kids. So it's pretty fortunate that I was only the only kid there. Another witness was walking her dog. When she looked up and saw the airplane heading straight down toward her, even though she didn't hear anything before that, she thought that was going to be her demise, but the airplane crashed about 50 yards away, and she was uninjured, her and her dog, luckily. But still, I mean, that terrifying moment when you look up and there's an airplane coming straight down at you.
3: I would
2: feel like you. hear the engines, though, right?
1: She probably did at the last second. (laughs) Oh,
2: that's true. That's some serious PTSD.
1: Yeah.
3: Well, yeah, when it's only falling for nine seconds, depending on how long, like, from when she didn't hear it to when she looked up,
1: it may not have mattered.
2: Right.
3: That's true.
1: Yep. They... There were over 60 witnesses to this incident that were interviewed that said, and I'm sure there's a lot more that are very, very interesting, but these ones were the ones that we could find and they were very strange. There's just, there's a lot of strange going on within those that honestly, if you were an investigator, I'm not sure any of this would have helped.
2: Yeah. Just the fact that the plane rolled and went down. That's all you need to know. Yeah. Right. I mean, and they figured out much later. That so, that really is all you needed to know.
1: Pretty much. So the NTSB arrived that night. The wreckage that they were examining of the entire airplane was 3.47 miles south of the end of the runway they were trying to land on. No pieces of wreckage were found along the flight path apart from the impact point. The fuselage was crushed accordion style, vertically. The wreckage was in an area smaller than a football field, and a lot of f- fire damage, but it was contained. The airplane's value at the time was $14.2 million. There was no damage to any structures in the ground, only some scorched trees and grass. The impact crater for this airplane was 39 feet by 24 feet by 15 feet deep. The entire fuselage was contained within that impact crater.
0: That's horrifying.
1: Yep, but that's how much force it hit the ground with. Investigators couldn't even hardly tell that it was an airplane from the minimal wreckage that was left behind. But they were able to find all corners of the airplane and determine that it was intact when it hit the ground. All flight control actuators, flap actuators, spoiler actuators were found. All flap mechanisms were consistent with flaps being extended. Investigators said that there were no seats found out of all the seats on the airplane.
2: They were all vaporized. Yep. I don't like that. Yep. It, it, and it it's happened... Sense, I'm sure, and it probably happened before, if it hits the ground with enough force, it just vaporizes stuff. Yep. There's just nothing left.
1: Yep. Compression is a crazy thing. That's sad, out of all of that, they were able to recover the black boxes, however, which is pretty crazy.
2: Yeah, but they make those so that they withstand ridiculous amounts of stuff. I mean, fire, being underwater, tumbling out, yeah, like... It doesn't surprise me that they would they would be able to find it.
1: Right. So, so far, based on what I've told you, do you have any questions, Emily? Are you confused?
3: Um. So, when they were coming in, what way were they turning? I may have just missed that. Yep,
1: so it's all good. So, they were making a left turn. They were so, making a U-turn, basically. They came south from Denver, made a U-turn to go north to land.
3: Okay, and then they, like, rolled right. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep, Which, they were rolling right to level, and then the airplane suddenly rolled to the right.
3: Like, farther.
1: And went upside down, and then nose down, and okay. hit the ground.
3: Cool, I just wanted to make sure I had all that. Yep. But yeah. Other than that, I'm not sure I have any other questions. It happened. That's semi-important.
2: Fast. Yeah, the only thing they encountered was the air turbulence from the mountains, right? It. It wasn't... From another aircraft?
1: It was not from another aircraft. They knew that there was turbulence in the area, and obviously from talking to the air traffic controllers, they knew that it was also violently changing.
2: Yeah,
0: well, and then their whole flight was pretty bumpy. Um, I don't know if it was actually on the CBR, but in the episode, the captain said something like, I can't imagine, like, it's hard to believe that the skies are unfriendly, which is funny, because that's United Airlines' slogan, is fly the friendly skies.
3: Yep.
2: Well, and, I mean, we live in Colorado, so we know... But it it can look completely harmless and have like 40 mile per hour winds. I'll get into that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. It can be perfectly great day outside and it would be warm except for the wind. Which, by the way. (laughs) Like yesterday? Yeah. Like not bitter, but kind of bitter. Like why Colorado? Like why do you got to be so weird?
1: Yep. Yep.
0: So, both black boxes were sent to Washington, D.C. to be analyzed by the NTSB labs. The CBR revealed that it was an impressive flight crew with strong crew resource management. They were able to get through the turbulent rough winds of the area during their flight with humor and use that to release the tension. It's a skill you need as a pilot. The FDR showed that the plane caught the glide slope and began a normal descent only to deviate 10 seconds later. Do you want to explain what a glide slope is?
1: Yeah, so a glide slope, on an approach to a runway, there is a a system of navigation that basically guides the airplane in at a perfect angle and a perfect lateral space, and it's called a glide slope. So basically, vertically, it would hold you at a normal airport about a three-degree slope all the way to the runway, and it'll keep you right within the range of the runway's width, basically, all the way in, in a straight line, that's your glide slope. And if you deviate from that glide slope, there's a lot of warnings and errors the airplane can actually tell you based on the navigational information at the airport, as long as it's all programmed into the airplane.
0: Yeah, so they had caught the glide slope, but deviated 10 seconds later. The CVR recorded the captain saying, wow, and the descent below the glide slope continued for 30 seconds to about 400 feet below the glide slope until they lost control. It was evident from the CVR that both pilots were caught by surprise by the loss of control and how rapidly it happened. According to the FDR, everyone on board had experienced about four G's prior to impact. Yikes.
1: That's quite a bit. I mean...
0: Some people probably lost consciousness.
1: Some people did, because you're not used to 4Gs, but 4Gs is in theory not... I mean, it's a lot, don't get me wrong. The point of impact would have been a lot more, but 4Gs, I mean, some fighter pilots do 9.
0: Okay, but they're trained to do that.
1: And they have suits to help them.
0: Investigators proceeded down several paths to determine the potential reason for this tragedy, mostly centered around mechanical failure. The very first step was analyzing the wreckage. The site of the crash was relatively small, as Nick had mentioned, indicating that the plane was intact at the time of the crash. Both the dirt embedded in the engine blades... as well as the hydraulic pressure gauges indicating that the engines were operating normally at the time of the crash. That narrowed the possibilities down to two things, weather and flight control surfaces. As Nick had mentioned, one of the witnesses had felt a huge gust when he was in his truck. Being in Colorado, especially along the I-25 corridor, we in the metro area, as well as in Colorado Springs, know how windy it can get. Rare and lucky is the day that you can have a completely smooth flight into DIA. Yeah. You should buy a lottery ticket. We on our trips have certainly had our fair share of bumpy landings, and this is due to our close proximity to the Rocky Mountains that run north to south through the state. As wind comes in over the Rockies, it creates waves of turbulence called rotors that you can see in the clouds, as I had mentioned. This phenomenon did actually bring down a 707 in the 1960s near Mount Fuji and it disintegrated the plane. Yikes. That was an extreme circumstance
2: but in any case.
1: But needless to say. there was looking... also a
2: 707 in the 1960s.
1: Yeah but needless to say they were looking very very closely at this.
2: On a, on a separate note because there are instances where here and they don't happen all that often where you get a super powerful wind that comes in and that's i'm pretty sure what they were talking about and it, it it's out of nowhere it can rip up trees yep and i was a lifeguard at a rec center not too far from here that mm-hmm. no longer exists but i was on the platform above the pool mm-hmm. and it happened yep <laughs> and i almost fell off the platform which I would have been incredibly hurt if I did. Yeah, no kidding. But there were bars, so I was able to hang on to the bar. Lucky. But it almost tore out a tree by the edge of the pool. Like that's how strong these winds can be. Yeah. Um, just to give everyone reference. I mean, there it's not like it's just a, a gust of wind that combs through your hair. No, it's very violent and it's very dangerous.
0: There was a video a couple of years ago. Like there was a
2: it happened when we were in high school.
0: There was a festival in Civic Center Park. And, like,
2: all the porta-potties went flying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what happened that one time when the binder fell on your head in high school. Thanks.
1: <laughs> there's a lot of examples yeah. of actually really high winds in Colorado. But as a matter of fact, in this report, actually, there's a witness statement that calls out and said earlier in the day... They had experienced such high winds in their neighborhood near the airport that actually it did knock several trees down, took out a few cars, hoods, and roofs and stuff. It did a lot of damage actually that day in a, in a nice clear day.
3: Was this one of those days where they like have to close highways? Because uh, I know that has I, happened.
1: It does happen. I don't and think it, it was
3: that bad. Oh, okay. I'm That's sure. like if
0: there's 60 mile per hour guests.
3: Well, fair, but they will knock over semis. Yes, they yes, will. Yes,
2: they will.
0: Uh, Pilots landing at Colorado Springs, of course, confirmed the low-altitude severe turbulence. However, a rotor strong enough to bring down a plane would have been accompanied by a roaring sound, which had been reported later, but witnesses did not hear one during the accident. They heard them like at noon. Ultimately, data from the FDR nixed the idea that a rotor could have brought down the plane as the altimeter would have spiked if this had happened, and it didn't. That's not to say winds didn't contribute to the crash, but they didn't alone cause it. Now for the flight controls. It was evident from witness statements and the flight data recorder that the loss of control began with a sudden roll to the right when they were turning onto their base leg. The flight control surfaces that can cause a roll are either primarily the ailerons or secondarily the rudder. The ailerons exclusively control roll, whereas the rudder controls yaw, or like left, level left to right movement, which causes air to increase speed over one wing which then leads to a roll. So it's like an unintended side effect, basically. Upon investigating the Aileron Power Control Units, or PCUs, they found that they were at or near neutral at impact, and there were no anomalies in the actuators to account for a weird roll. The investigators arrived at the rudder at the tail of the plane, which is controlled by pedals at the pilot's feet. Kind of a side note. I noticed in this report there was some initial concern about the height and size of the first officer, as she was small, though not as small as Miranda. Hey, Hold
1: on. <laughs> this does get interesting.
0: She was five foot four and hundred and thirty pounds. Boeing said that eighty pounds of leg force is necessary to achieve full rudder authority under normal operation. A medical official reviewed her medical records and reported that she was able to achieve that. What I found kinda of funny was the federal regulations state that all planes must be designed to be adjustable to handle a pilot with a minimum height of five foot two. My point in all this is Miranda can't be a commercial pilot because she's five foot one and three quarters. <laughs> Five foot one and a half, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, yeah. I'm, I'm really like,
3: glad that's not your dream, then. Yeah, for <laughs>
2: real. That nicks every...
1: You just gotta... If you ever decide you want to be a pilot, you gotta show up to the, the interview wearing those, like, sketchers <laughs> that have, like, the three-inch sole heels. on them. You stuff yeah. tissue yeah. in your shoe. Come on, man. That, too. But at least with those, like, it's not as obvious because it's like, oh, they're wearing a shoe with... Wow, that's a big sole.
2: Yeah, so I... Mm. i feel like that's (laughs) sizest or just
1: just come in with really big hair
2: really big hair (laughs) i can do that i have curly hair yeah it can can happen
1: there you go i don't know if i
2: want to tease it so that it's that bad It's supposed to be
1: a half inch taller that's half
2: an inch taller that's all anyway that was my funny side tangent anyways back to the
0: rudder Almost none of the rudder remained after impact. Uh, however, the power control unit, or PCU, was damaged but intact. This unit acts the same as the power steering in your car does. Instead of having to do huge motions in the cockpit to make the equivalent size motions of the rudder, the PCU uses hydraulics to translate the foot pedal's relatively small movements to larger movements of the rudder. The main actuator of the system was and is the dual servo valve, which consists of two valves rubbing against each other, and they move the rudder side to side based on the pedal inputs from the pilot. When they opened the system, there were chips of metal in the hydraulic fluid. This could have caused a jam, which would have perfectly explained the unexpected loss of control. So they took the part to its manufacturer, Parker Hinnifin, who explained that there are filters in place, so these chips never actually would have gotten to the actuating unit, basically. Also, if they had, they they would have left scratches, and there weren't any. They also performed fatigue tests to Prove that it could never jam under these circumstances.
2: But they couldn't figure out where the metal came from.
0: No, they never mentioned that anywhere.
2: Yeah, they, it was there, but they couldn't figure out where it came from. And
0: based on the fact that there were filters, it sounds like they kind of anticipated that. Right. Yeah. I mean, where and where. Yeah.
3: So then wouldn't they have anticipated where it theoretically could have come from?
0: Yeah, but there were filters. It shouldn't have jammed it. The metal Ulti- chips shouldn't have jammed the valves.
1: Ultimately it really doesn't matter where it came from because it didn't it didn't get to it the wasn't. actual actuator. Yep.
2: Yeah, so the that was next.
0: Yep. For many months after that, the NTSB continued to pursue other mechanical explanations and went down a bunch of rabbit holes that would take an hour and a half to describe, so I'm not going to. Twenty-one months after the incident, the NTSB released their report,
2: and Miranda's going to explain all that yeah this is my part friends
1: yeah she actually knows about this one so i do so participate.
2: i'll read the findings and the probable cause verbatim and then if we need any translation nick will do the translation hello emily ask questions yes if you have questions just so you know these <laughs> 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 that's the key part just
1: yeah. so you know these findings are are going to be very confusing i will try to make this as.
3: i'll save my questions for after your explanation
1: yeah Findings always read very strange. I try to translate them before I ever read them to you guys on the podcast, because they do usually read.
3: Also, I
2: apologize for my reading, because this is the first time I've read these, so... Alright, findings. Number one, the flight crew was certified and qualified for the flight.
1: Needless to say, they were fine.
2: Yeah. Number two... The airplane was properly certified and maintained in accordance with existing regulations. So it was good to fly.
1: Maintenance was not an issue. Crew was qualified to fly.
2: Number three, the airplane was dispatched in accordance with company procedures and federal regulations. Dispatch of the airplane with the inoperative APU generator is not a factor in the accident.
1: Yes. Oh, by the way,
2: the APU was out.
1: The APU was out, but that doesn't affect anything about the flight at all. Because APU is really only used for battery power, basically. What is the APU? you The APU is the Auxiliary Power Unit. It's a third Uh, engine. It's a third engine in the airplane that lives in the tail. And it doesn't perform any thrust at all for the airplane. So it doesn't do anything. It literally just produces power.
0: And it it like powers the AC unit, stuff like that. So when you're pulling out of the gate at an airport, you can hear the AC turn off when they disconnect from ground power. And then you can hear the APU kick on and then the AC will come back.
1: And then when they switch to the, they call it compressor power, But that's when they switch to power driven off of the actual engines itself. You'll actually get a flicker in the cabin really quick. Everybody always like, I always see people every single time that look like, is that normal? The lights just flickered. Should they be flickering before we even leave the ground? Well, what just happened is when they flickered, the pilots switched from the APU to compressor power so they could shut the APU off.
2: Yeah, so that's normal.
1: So that way it runs off the engines. They don't need to have the APU running the whole time burning their fuel. They just shut the APU off and let it run from the actual engines itself.
2: Which is why it wasn't a problem that it was out. Yeah. Yep.
0: So
1: it
2: wasn't contributing to the accident. Nope. Number four there was no evidence that the performance of the flight crew was affected by illness or incapacitation, fatigue, or problems associated with personal or professional backgrounds procedures and callouts were made in accordance with the UAL procedures.
1: Yep, this was, again, the flight crew was qualified and coherent, and they were able to do their job, and they did not purposefully crash the airplane, they determined, especially after the CVR, when literally as they were coming out of the turn, the first officer actually made the 1,000-foot call-out, and that's when everything went awry. Right then.
0: Well, and if you read the CVR transcript, they use pound signs or hashtags
2: to indicate swearing. There was a lot of swearing. Yeah. Which there should be if you're crashing into the ground. <laughs> Number five, there were no air traffic control factors in the cause of the accident.
1: Nope, air traffic controller was doing their job.
2: Number six, there was no evidence of any permanent failure or m- malfunction of the structure of the airplane or of the airplane's electronical instrument or navigation systems.
1: That was so, actually proved by the FDR too because yeah. the FDR was working all the way till the moment of impact for all data points. Yeah,
2: so it wasn't a factor. Seven, both engines were operating and developing power at the time of impact number eight the crew did not report any malfunction or difficulties not that they had time to nope true but i I would think if there was a problem on the flight it would have happened before this point you'd think but maybe not i don't know all right we would never know because it crashed nine there were anomalies found with the hydraulic and flight control systems but none that would explain an uncommanded rolling motion or initial loss of control of the airplane so the chips in the metal
1: right that's yeah so they they found
2: that that was an issue but they couldn't figure out how that would have affected them into a rolling motion Right. Ten, galling found in the input shaft and bearing from the standby rudder actuator power control unit could not cause sufficient rudder deflection to render the airplane uncontrollable.
1: So that was a second unit that didn't, it wasn't the active unit, basically.
0: That was one of the rabbit holes.
1: And ultimately it was no factor.
0: Because it could only do like, I think it was like plus or minus five degrees something or something like that of the rudder, which
2: wouldn't have caused a hard over. Right. Right. 11. The airplane encountered a number of orgographically induced... Atmospheric phenomena including updrafts and downdrafts, gusts, and vertical and horizontal axis vortices. A horizontal axis vortex is, or a the, rotor. Yeah, is the most likely phenomena that could have caused the airplane to roll uncontrollably. However, the FDR does not conclusively support an encounter of a vortex of the strength necessary to cause an uncontrollable roll of the airplane.
0: Basically, it was a bumpy ride. And it wasn't bumpy enough to bring down the plane.
3: But could that, like, with the one with 10 plus the bumpy ride, like, theoretically, all the small ones, couldn't they combine into enough like, That's the systems? That's
1: difficult to say. All the stuff that they were given for up to these findings so far, no. I mean, they. Because the actuator was working normally. Okay. They didn't find that the metal chips were actually affecting the actuator.
0: Yeah, and so basically they ran simulators to combine all of these things and none of them replicated what happened.
2: Okay. Yeah, they couldn't they couldn't replicate exactly how the plane rolled hard overed. Yeah. Okay. So they weren't able to say that that was conclusively a factor. Okay. All right. And 12, the last one, either meteorological phenomena or an undetected mechanical malfunction or a combination of both could have led to the loss of control.
1: So that's where they state that "Eh, maybe it's possible, but they really they couldn't determine one.
3: Yeah, it doesn't help when you have a when you're investigating a plane that is now the size of a living room.
1: Yeah, that's true. (laughs) It was pretty hard to determine much when the airplane was compacted that small.
3: Yes. It is a hundred
1: and some odd seat airplane.
2: Wasn't the, the rudder broken it was like like obliterated yeah so they couldn't use the rudder to figure out anything either pretty much all they had left of the rudder was
0: the power control unit which they took apart and then found the chips and
1: it was also damaged so they couldn't determine if that was a factor or not
2: like, they couldn't determine if the chips were in there before or after the crash happened. And, and they couldn't figure out where the chips could have come from. And Parker Hanifin said,
0: regardless, it wouldn't have caused a jam. They actually yeah.
1: tested the actuator, and it actuated as normal.
0: Yeah, it, it, like, worked.
1: And then, as for the rotors, the rotor clouds and such, I mean, people had reported it in the area earlier.
0: <laughs> and they did just fine.
1: But, yeah, they did just fine. And there was, I mean, there wasn't any true report of it actually happening at the time, other than the uh, the man in his truck
2: Yeah. Alright, and now the probable cause verbatim from the report. The National Transportation Safety Board, after an exhaustive investigation effort, could not identify conclusive evidence to explain the loss of United Airlines Flight 585. The two most likely events that could have resulted in a sudden uncontrollable lateral upset are a malfunction of the airplane's lateral or directional control system or an encounter with an unusually severe atmospheric disturbance. Although anomalies were identified in the airplane's rudder control system, none would have produced a rudder movement that could not have been easily countered by the airplane's lateral controls. The most likely atmospheric disturbance to produce an uncontrollable rolling movement was the rudder, a horizontal axis vortex, or rotor, excuse me, produced by a combination of high winds aloft and the mountain's terrain. Conditions were conductive to the formation of a rotor, and some witnesses' observations of mm-hmm support the existence of a rotor at or near the time and place of the accident. However, too little is known about the characteristics of such rotors to conclusively say whether they were a factor in this accident.
0: Basically, we have no idea what happened.
1: All of that to say that they have an undetermined reason for this accident. This was only the fourth time in the NTSB's history that they issued an undetermined report. And that goes for trains, tractors, boats, planes, you name it, and they investigated if it deals with transportation. This was only the fourth time in their entire history that they issued an undetermined report.
2: Yeah, they couldn't figure out. They were like, it could have been a flight control surface, but we couldn't find anything to support that. And it could have been a disturbance, like a rotor, the atmospheric disturbance, but we couldn't find any evidence around that either. So we don't know.
1: Yep.
3: Very conclusive.
1: Yeah, right? <laughs> so that said, it wasn't solved yet. Yet.
2: Yet. So they couldn't have any real recommendations because they couldn't figure out what caused it to happen
1: and this actually scared the airline industry to death
2: because the
0: 737 to this day is one of the most used passenger jets everyone uses it
1: yep and for one to just fall out of the sky when it was just on a normal approach everything seemed to be going very normally and then at the last second it didn't that was very very concerning Also to the flying public, not just because they would get on these airplanes, but because it literally fell out of the sky into a public park where people were. Thankfully, nobody on the ground was injured, but a lot of people saw this happen because they were around. So people started worrying that the 737 was just going to start falling out of the sky.
2: Which wasn't particularly the case, but they couldn't, the NTSB, because they didn't know what happened, they couldn't prevent it from happening again. Because they didn't know what happened, if it was the airplane, if it was the pilots, if it was the weather. They just didn't know. And that's why everyone was so scared.
1: They were like, what? Right. And because of that, yeah, since they couldn't issue anything for the 737, you know, there was a lot of debate about should we ground the 737? Should we let it keep flying? And they all, the FAA and the NTSB ultimately said, let's keep it. Let it keep flying because they've been working for so many years. I mean, this one was an old an old type of 737 and it had already been a workhorse of the industry. There was already more of them than any other airplane on the planet, carrying more people than any other airplane. And so it's like, you know, well, this is one anomaly, one very, very, very strange anomaly we have no explanation for yet. So they let him fly for the time being.
0: Any questions? No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You might have more next week.
0: Yeah. Which is when you're going to have to wait to hear the next segment of this series. Yeah, we're leaving you on a cliffhanger. Yep. Sorry, so, not sorry.
2: that was United 585. <laughs> um, we hope you had a good week. Sorry for the cliffhanger, but there's nothing we can do about it. If you don't hate us, please support us on Patreon.
1: <laughs> yeah, go listen. Go, Go support us on Patreon and listen to all the new content we have up there
2: extra my, stuff my miranda sode's up there now
1: miranda sode and get the the post episodes and your ad freeze and if you're already doing that good good for you but
2: yeah
1: i'd be surprised because we don't have any as yeah. of
3: right this second we don't have any yeah. yeah
1: and we already launched this by the time we recorded this so
3: they're pretty cool so maybe do it yeah maybe
1: maybe, wow. maybe do it <laughs>
2: <laughs> all right um and if you don't Go to Patreon, listen to more of us. We will. Uh, I want. I wanted to say see you next week, but we don't see you, so you'll hear us next week.
1: So listen to us next week
2: to find out more about what's going on. Keep your airspeed up. Please like and follow us
0: on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast, and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also
2: subscribe and leave us a five star review on whatever platform you're using to listen.
1: If you want to see photos and sources for this episode please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions.
2: This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy.
1: Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo.
0: And our logo is by Naomi. And our social media is coordinated by Sonora.
1: Catch you next time.